foreign policy, while former Defence Secretary Robert Gates predicts Crimea will not stay under Ukrainian control. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning, three minutes after eight o'clock. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Hong Kong and China markets will likely be on edge this morning after the bad trade data out over the weekend and the bond default. The Australian dollar, sometimes a proxy for China growth, is down a bit this morning, and so are copper futures. If you missed it, over the weekend, mainland exports fell the most since the financial crisis hit in 08-09. Shipments abroad dropped 18.1% from a year earlier. Economists had predicted a gain of 7.5%. And meantime, Shanghai Chowri Solar became the first company to default in China's onshore bond market. Uh, it missed an interest payment at the end of last week. There are a lot of caveats on this, though, a lot of reasons that uh, some people don't think this news is as negative as it looks uh, on, the, on paper. And we'll get to that in just a moment. We'll be looking uh, at China through the prism of the National People's Congress. We'll also take a look at the U.S. economy after the relatively good, and again, I say relatively good, U.S. jobs report. We're expecting growth to probably be on a roughly 3% trend as we look out through the rest of 2014 and into 2015 and beyond. So that's Bill Dudley. He's the Fed president in New York. Several Fed officials were out last week, in fact, talking up that roundabout 3% growth expectation, along with a caveat. It's an improving economic environment. Uh, and we're determined to keep a uh, monetary policy very, very accommodative uh, to, to, to keep it that way. Uh, we would like to see actually faster growth uh, than what we're seeing uh, right now. And that's why U.S. monetary policy continues to be very accommodative. Accommodative, yes, but they were also uh, at pains to say that it would take something like a material change in the outlook to taper the taper. In other words, to pull back on their reduction in bond buying that they are doing. Uh, Coming up on this program this morning, we'll be taking a look at the latest from the NPC in Beijing. Joining us for that discussion is Victor Shi from Northwestern University. We'll also take a look at the latest U.S. economic data in the United States and markets there with Orient's David Goldman and our own correspondent, Barry Wood. Before we get to that, let's take a peek of Asian markets. They're mostly lower this morning. The Nikkei's down 68 points at 15,206. That's a drop of about half a percent. It seems that around about half a percent uh, is the call throughout the region. Australia down 29 points. That's also a half a percent drop. And in in Seoul, the Kospi is down seven points. That's about four-tenths of one percent in 1967. I mentioned the Australian dollar a little weaker. 90.57. 90.57. It was up over at 91 before. Uh, the pound is now at 12 Hong Kong dollars, 98 cents. The dollar is at 103.22 yen. So the yen um, is a little weaker against the dollar. That may mean that those losses in uh, the Nikkei may turn around. And uh, the euro against the dollar, 1.38. Okay, so... Uh, Perhaps the most interesting question this morning is the default in China. Does that lead to contagion or is it just a one-off? So we'll get to that in just a moment. A guest that I have in mind for that, although maybe ask all of them as well, but uh, the main guest on that coming up a little later in the program. First, let's get a fuller picture of the U.S. with more from Mr. Bill Dudley. 
I believe that the underlying fundamentals of the U.S. economy have improved to the point where we can expect sustained growth rate above the roughly 2.5% pace that we saw in that four-year period from the uh, middle of 2009 through the middle of 2013. Um, but we won't probably see that right away. Uh, the reason for that, of course, is the weather has been unusually uh, cold and unusually snowy. And we're also going to see a little bit of a payback for the uh, rapid improvement in trade that we saw in the last part of 2013 and the inventory uh, contribution to growth. Uh, some of that will probably reverse in the first half of this year. Um, so as we see it, the first quarter will probably be the weakest part of 2014. And then as weather hopefully returns to normal, uh, we'll see the economy picking up again. Um, we're expecting growth to probably be on a roughly 3% trend as we look out through the rest of 2014 and into 2015 and beyond. Our first guest this morning is David Goldman, Managing Director and Head of Americas at the Reorient Group. Uh, David, good morning. Good morning. So I mentioned that there is some positive and some negative in a lot of this stuff that we're likely to be talking about this morning. Uh, even the jobs report, which uh, on paper looked pretty good, 175,000 uh, uh, new jobs. Uh, however, unemployment rising a little bit. And uh, we did see some revisions of earlier months. That's also positive. But hours work down. So what did you focus on the most? I think the right gauge to look at is the total amount of labor effort put in, which is total man hours. And alarmingly, this has shown zero growth over the past year through February. So the total amount of work in the United States hasn't changed. Now, we had a 1.9 percent rate of growth overall in 2013 with about 1.8 percent increase in labor productivity. That adds up. The Fed expected 3 to 4 percent growth variously, and we're seriously disappointed, I think the Fed's credibility in uh, predicting a 3% trend is a bit challenged by the failure of their forecast last year. I would look for growth at more like 1.5% uh, for 2014. Well, basically, they said that growth since 2009 has been about 2.5%, and they see a little bit of a pickup from that. They acknowledge that the first quarter may be weak, uh, not only because of the weather, but also because they added a lot of inventory late last year. Perhaps the trade drops off a little bit. But it seems that they're predicting a much bigger pickup in the rest of 2014 after the first quarter. Do you dispute that? I, I think that's a stretch. I think they'd be very lucky to get it. We've got headwinds that we really have never had before in any recovery. This really doesn't feel like a recovery. Incomes haven't risen. Median U.S. family income is still 10 percent below the last peak, uh, which has never happened before in recorded history. Uh, retail sales year on year show essentially no growth in real terms. I think about 1%. So consumers simply aren't spending. The huge stock market gains have accrued to the very to relatively affluent consumers who are less likely to be sensitive to the wealth effect. So you see companies like Costco and Walmart showing very poor results. The second thing is companies are hoarding cash instead of investing or they're buying back shares or they're buying each other. But you don't see the kind of capital investment we've had in the past. You're starting to see a pickup, though. Well, it's a pickup from a very low level. Uh, manufacturers' new orders for capital goods are still about 15 percent below the last peak in real terms. So we've got an economy, both in terms of consumption, employment, labor effort, and capital investment, which is so far off trend that – little increases can look big in the short term on a percentage basis. But 
the two, the less than 2% growth track we had last year really looks like to continue, unless, of course, the weather accounts for everything. But I find that a stretch. But looking at earnings, they have been pretty good. Uh, you had earnings per share in the S&P 500 companies down to about 50 in 08, 09, now up at 110 plus. Uh, the companies... Uh, the stock market is really gauged on on the best companies in America. So let's pick the S and P five hundred. Those companies are doing well. Yes, they're doing. They're ha- they're showing a lot more profits and essentially flat or declining revenues, which is also a unique situation. Part of that is because they're paying less corporate tax than they ever have in the past. So after tax profits are exaggeratedly high, but I don't think the trend of profit increase can keep going with essentially flat revenues. So I don't think the stock market is going to crash this year like some of the real bears because accommodative monetary policy leaves investors with few other places to go. But I don't see the kind of gains we had last year. I think the stock market will struggle a bit to eke out very modest gains. You're negative on the U.S., but you're positive on China. And that that gives me a little pause for thought, because I'd like to look at you guys and think, well, maybe you're just really nervous and cautious all the time. And yet you have a quite positive view on China. Well, we have How do you a, reconcile those We two? have a bifurcated view on China. We think the new Chinese economy, the tech stocks, uh, the financials, everything that benefits from the forums will do very well. In fact, tech stocks are up, have roughly doubled since uh, last summer. We think many parts of the Chinese economy and the stock market are dead in the water, uh, and represent the destruction side, if you will, of the creative destruction equation. So we're guardedly optimistic about China achieving the 7.5% growth target. But in terms of the stock market, we're selectively optimistic. Uh, on balance, we're optimistic, but uh, there are many parts of the stock market we think are um, likely to continue to flatline. Okay, let me pop that key question to you about Shanghai Chowri Solar. It became the first uh, onshore uh, default there. Um, does that lead to contagion or is it contained? In fact, was it rolled out on purpose by the authorities to show that, you know, these things, uh, they're not always going to be bailed out? Well, I think the authorities did the right thing. I mean, to have, If they want to have a market, as they've said, you know, big markets, uh, small government, uh, they've got to let the market have its victims if people make bad investment decisions. So I think it was surely the right thing to do. The key in China is that so much of the financial system is dominated by state banks, which are very poor and inefficient lenders. We've got to see alternative financing, which is better than the shadow banking market come, to fill the gap. And we're hoping that uh, organizations like Alibaba, for example, with their Internet finance facilities, may be the wave of the future in finance. Okay, hang on for a second, because I'd like to bring in my second guest this morning, and uh, you may find it interesting to counter some of his comments. He generally is a little sunnier than you are on the U.S. economy, so we may get a little bit of a debate. We say good morning to Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent based in Washington. Barry, good day to you. Good morning, Brian. Yeah, good to have you back uh, on the radio with us. Uh, We've just been hearing a little bit about uh, U.S.-China, and of course um, there's a lot more going on in Europe and much to talk about in the global economy. Let me first get your reaction to the jobs report out uh, Friday night our time. Well, pretty amazing stuff. I mean, we had uh, almost become used to bad news, not so much on the jobs front alone, but just because of an accumulation of sort of tepid growth statistics that back that up. So I think when you get 175,000 jobs and you've had a very difficult winter, this is, this is good news. And I think the stock market is reflecting that. 
David has been making the point that hours worked dropped to 34.2 hours a week. And that's worrisome because it's actually been down for quite a few months in a row and it's only flat over the past year. And he says that hours worked is actually the best read rather than jobs because it is the total labor output. Well, hours worked times jobs. It's okay. both together. Yeah. All right. So, Barry, why is he wrong? Well, I, I can't really address that because I think that I'm going to concede that David knows a lot more about the vagaries of that um, statistical gauge and what the components within it really do say. I tend to look at the uh, long-term trend, and I think the trend is just up. And the fact that we had some people entering the labor market uh, was pretty good despite a bad winter, was it not? Yes. Well, David is sort of like uh, an economist or a bean counter, spends a lot of time looking over graphs in in his um, small office. Uh, I'm not sure he gets out on the street as much as you do. When you get out on the street, is there optimism out there? Yes, there is. Yes, there is. Look, it's not gangbusters. But uh, the fact is, we're going to grow at 2.5%. We're going to do better than at 1.9% last year. And I think that... Uh, you know, things always get better in springtime, and we're, we've had such a severe winter here in North America that I think that there is real sense that things are going to get better. Car sales are good. Housing sales are good. Consumer confidence is steady. The stock market has increased so much wealth. I mean, what have we got here in these last five years? $16 trillion of additional wealth. I'm not going to quibble with the fact that there are problems within that index and that that index is going to jump up and down. But it seems to me the trend is up. Okay, I want to give David a chance to you talk know, about that. Uh, the, the, the wealth effect yeah, is that. a graveyard of economic reputations, and one deals with it with, uh, with caution. But You're going to whip out your annuity story here. I think it's worthwhile considering that the, that the recovery in the stock market has really only brought us back in real terms, inflation adjusted to where we were in 1999. So American investors have had a 15-year 15, 15 lost decade and a half. They've simply restored their stock market valuation to where it was 15 years ago. And there's a serious question on my mind, to what extent that will really inspire people to go to the store and blow out the credit card, and also to what extent that this wealth is very concentrated in a relatively small part of the population, such that you know, most people, the kind of people who go to Walmart and Costco, really are spending less, which is why those mass retailers are so, uh, showing such disappointing results. I thought it was also interesting that uh, story that you told about uh, in looking at household wealth uh, in comparison with what an annuity would get you. So that takes into account rates at the moment. Sure. In other words, if you converted your stock market holdings now into uh, annuitized income by, say, buying corporate bonds, you get a great deal less than you would would have in 1999. So Americans are still very short of funding for their retirements, despite their recovery of the stock market. We've kind of caught up 15 years of lost ground. But that's not the same as making progress. Remember, the debate here is not between the U.S. economy falling apart and the stock market vaporizing, but between a 3% growth target, which is relatively healthy, and a below 2% growth path, which I believe is, uh, is what we're going to get, which is anemic. Okay, so David, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, let thank me uh, go back to to Barry and and focus on uh, on developments uh, with with him. Barry, uh, great to have you on again. Uh, are, by the way, are you back from South Africa or still there? Still there. Oh, still okay. There. And we'll be for a 
two or three more weeks. Oh, I see. Okay, so maybe we can uh, just at the end talk a little bit about uh, your observations uh, about the South African economy because it's kind of in that group of fragile five. But back to the U.S. just for a couple of uh, final uh, questions. Uh, in regards to um, the overall positive aspects that you see. You mentioned that housing was still okay. Job growth, you know, maybe it's not the greatest, but uh, it's it's a little bit uh, tweaked by the bad weather. What else do you like of what you see? Well, I think I want to answer that really by going back to what David just said. I mean, I don't dispute that uh, real wages are flat. I don't dispute that the Walmart shopper is struggling. I don't dispute the fact that uh, retirement is not something that most Americans have planned for. But despite that, uh, it, it just is what I like is primarily a sense that the worst is over. You know, we have had so much bad news. The political debate always focuses on the terrible economy. The Republicans harp on it. The Republicans don't get very far, but the Democrats don't really have a lot of good news to report. I think that uh, there is a strong sense that the industrial Middle West has turned a corner. It's not back to normal, but it is, it, there's a perception that it's getting better. So what I like is the fact that you can look at technology on the West Coast and say, my goodness, this is exciting and is really taking off. You can look at the rest of the country. You can see that exports are at least steady. They're not yet growing. There has been no catastrophe, and I think that it's, it's more a hopeful sign that I see than all kinds of accumulated evidence of a recovery that's already at 3%. Do we have a two-tiered economy, though? Are the haves doing pretty darn well, thank you very much, uh, where the have-nots are struggling? Well, I think that's regrettably the case. And, you know, I, I'm not one of those who likes to harp on the 1% analysis, but uh, you can certainly make the case that we do have a two-tier economy. And uh, there's a lot of people who are suffering. But, you know, the five years after the stock market bottom is a good time to reflect on what is approaching six years since the, the catastrophe of, of the Lehman Brothers collapse. And, you know, we, we have, uh, we've held our own and we've, we've clawed back and we've certainly done better than Europe. Uh, you know, real wages are not down like they are in any of the peripheral countries of Europe. So again, I think you, you look at, uh, an overall situation, you get the United States saying, we're not looking bad. If I could segue into South Africa, the taper may be a, a nice way to do it. Uh, the Fed officials that I mentioned talking about 3% growth also were, were uh, saying that uh, it was unlikely that they would taper the taper. What sort of impact is that having on one of the so-called fragile five, that is the emerging market uh, countries that may suffer with this reduction in bond buying by the U.S.? Well, it's having a big effect. There's been a tremendous outflow of capital from South Africa. But ironically, and I think maybe this is the central point, the South African stock market is at record highs. Their currency is down by about 25% over the last 12 months. But their stock market continues to go forward, despite the fact that they're not getting any foreign direct investment and that their capital outflows have been very severe. That's the reason that interest rates have now turned up. But Ben Bernanke was in Johannesburg just uh, four days ago after he came from Dubai. I don't think he got the $250,000 speaking fee here in Joburg, but uh, he was here and he addressed this. I mean, the South Africans, I think, are 
very determined to disabuse foreign investors that they are fragile. They are rather making the case that we are taking corrective action that is going to at least protect this economy from the vagaries of, of what is happening with QE. They don't like the pullback in QE, but they know it's a reality. And the finance ministry and the central bank are pretty strong institutions here. You've got sort of a weak presidency and a government that's making a lot of curious decisions. But the finance ministry and the central bank are solid. All right, Barry, I've got an interesting discussion coming up on the NPC and the China bond default and that. So I'll let you go and we'll talk again next week. That's Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent. We don't get fooled again. So we go from that kind of thinking to this. Yeah, it's just sort of, uh, you know, the way markets are. You've got the glass half full and you've got the glass half empty. Uh, so we've got an interesting uh, couple of stories that we wanted to uh, to dig down more deeply in on China. And we welcome now to the program Victor Schur, a political economist at Northwestern University. Uh, Mr. Schur, good morning. So, Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I'm in the University of California now, actually. University of California. Ah, good. Uh, very nice uh, countryside up there uh, at Berkeley. Uh, so is that, are you at UC Berkeley or one of the other UC schools? Uh, San Diego. Oh, San Diego. Ah, one of my former alma maters. Uh, love it there. Uh, and uh, and so it's nice to have you on the program. We don't have the best feed, uh, so it's probably, uh, it's probably good that we don't have a lot of time. First, I want to ask you about the default over the weekend. Is that going to be a major story, one that leads to a lot of money trying to flee uh, bonds, or will it be taken as a one-off? Uh, so, so far, uh, the bond market has not been affected by it that much. Uh, and the reason is because uh, there aren't that many major players in the Chinese bond market. We're really only talking about the major banks, uh, brokerages and insurance companies, all of which are state-owned. So if the company, uh, if, the, if the government wanted to calm down the market, it can. And in this case, I suspect is, is what actually happened. Uh, the first bond default in China is a big deal. I think over the medium term, this will definitely erode the confidence of people in uh, some of the corporate bonds. Uh, especially corporations with very poor cash flows, uh, which, as we know, is quite numerous in China. So, you know, maybe the first case won't have such a huge impact. But I think as more and more cases of both bond and trust default uh, proliferate, uh, investors' confidence in the Chinese financial system uh, will be eroded over time. Do you like the management uh, of liquidity by the People's Bank of China um, over the past couple of months? I think it has been a very tricky thing for them. Um, you know, uh, on the one hand, um, you know, up until June of last year, the People's Bank of China has kept interbank rates very low, but let, that led to a situation where uh, a lot of banks uh, and also even corporations were borrowing money into interbank market at very low rates and then investing that money in very risky products uh, such as the bond, high yielding bonds and trust products are getting in trouble right now. So as a deterrent, uh, they raised the interest rate in the interbank market, and then that made it extremely difficult for all kinds of borrowers to roll over the debt. Um, as you know, you know, China is now extremely indebted. Um, 
you know, fighting the, among, China, among the most dead countries uh, in the world, and all kinds of entities in China, government corporations, need to roll over a lot of debt, and if interest rates are high, it's extremely difficult for them to do so. So now the DOT has had to ease monetary policy to some extent in the past couple months so as to facilitate uh, the rolling over of a massive amount of debt in China. So do I like it? I mean, they're doing what they have to do, but then I think, you know, if they lower rates more than the current level, uh, then the currency may uh, start to peak in more obviously than it has already in the past couple weeks. And then also we have the latest uh, export numbers in January and February, which uh, don't look very good at all. Uh, it also shows that a lot of the so-called export is, in fact, um, the carry trade that is uh, happening through Hong Kong. So, so let's just... Let's, let's explain that just briefly, uh, the carry trade being you borrow money uh, really here in Hong Kong, convert it to renminbi and invest it in some sort of renminbi product. You've got the appreciation of the renminbi plus whatever the coupon was. You think that, um, that that is likely to turn around or just to slow a bit? Do, do you think? Know, right? so, do do you think that there's a danger of capital flight from China? Uh, I think there is. I think I think you know. Of course, China has capital control, um, but but they have ways of getting it out. Exactly, it's the current account. So you know, the current account is completely convertible. So if you can just show some kind of trade invoice to the authorities, you are able to get money quite easily into and out of China. And many people have taken advantage of that. This is why, up to this point, we've had a lot of uh, capital inflows, hot money inflows in China. But the reverse is equally true when um, speculators think that they're better off betting on the dollar instead of the B, They can also easily take money out of China. Okay, just briefly, because we're almost out of time and it's a really lousy phone line. Uh, exports down more than 18% last month, but imports were up more than expected, up 10%. Uh, the trade data, is it so you know, tweaked or or impacted by the Chinese New Year that we just don't know yet and we have to wait another month? Uh, I think, you know, of course, um, there are some distortions because of the Chinese New Year, but uh, we have to realize that we're making year-on-year comparisons with January and February of last year also when, when there was also the Chinese New Year happens every year. Uh, and last year, I believe, it also you know happened around early February. Uh, and so, in fact, so the, the comparison of last year is, is broadly comparable, and the numbers have deteriorated quite markedly. What's interesting here is that the import data continues to grow yeah. uh, because China now needs to import more and more of its food consumption, and that's not a trend that's going to be reversed anytime soon. Okay, all right. So um, as export weekends, um, China may run a persistent trade deficit. 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, another day, another discussion on a better line. Thank you very much. That's Victor Schur, political economist at UC San Diego, right there in La Jolla on the bluffs overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Markets are lower, but not by a whole lot, just around a half a percent throughout the region. Oil prices 108.73 and gold at 1336. Weather briefly today, because I'm about ready to run out of time with the music, cloudy with some rain, cool temperatures, 15 only as the high. The news with Samantha Butler. As efforts continue to locate an airliner that disappeared on a flight from Malaysia to China, a Vietnamese plane has reported seeing at least one object in the South China Sea off the country's coastline. However, there's no confirmation that it's wreckage from the missing flight, which had 239 people on board, mostly Chinese. Commander William Marks of the U.S.